Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. There's a lot going on in the news today. I shared with you, you know, I was thinking out loud about this on the area about, you know, could Kamala Harris, the Constitution says that the vice president basically has two jobs. Number one, the vice president is the president in waiting. You know, uh, John Nance Garner, I believe it was said that uh, it, the vice presidency wasn't worth a warm bucket of spit or words to that effect, you know, because it was just like, hey, sit around waiting. But the other job that the vice president is given by the Constitution is president of the Senate. And when the president of the Senate is not there, that is the vice president, then the president pro tem, which is Latin for during a period of time or for a period of time, the president pro tem fills in for the president of the Senate. And the official president pro tem right now is Chuck Grassley. It's the longest serving member of the majority party. Now that's written in the Senate rules. It's not in the Constitution. That's in the Senate rules. That's the temporary president, right? The acting president. But the actual president of the Senate is the vice president. And all of the things about what the president pro tem or, the, or what the president of the Senate can do and who runs the Senate all of them basically start with this phrase, absent the presence of the vice president or the president of the Senate, the actual president of the Senate, there shall be blah de blah So I'm going to continue my research on this and put it together. You'll recall it was back in March of this year that I started talking on this program. A, you know, a friend of mine in Washington, D.C., an old conservative, made the comment to me that over at the White House, they were talking about the 12th Amendment. They were talking about having enough confusion in the election that individual states could simply, the state legislatures could simply appoint electors and make Donald Trump president. And, you know, I published an op-ed about that, I believe in April, on uh, Alternet and Raw Story and Salon and whatnot. And I asked Tom Perez about it on this program in April or May. And he was like, oh, I don't, I've not heard anything about that. I mean, I'm not so worried. We, our lawyers are good. They'll take care of everything, but I'm not worried about it. Well, it turns out that actually was their plan. 
And the way they were going to create the chaos was through destroying over 600 high-speed mail sorting machines in the post office. This was their plan. The guy who's the chair of the Postal Board of Governors is one of the largest Republican donors in the country. And the Postal Board of Governors, all Republicans now, they appointed Louis DeJoy as the Postmaster General, and he executed this plan, destroying over 600 multi-million dollar high-speed sorting machines that can sort 40,000 pieces of mail an hour, and replacing them with uh, postal workers doing it by hand and eliminating all overtime. So, of course, everything slowed down. So that was their plan. And, you know, it's kind of bittersweet or whatever that I was right about it from the beginning and and people were telling me I was crazy and dismissing me. Well, I don't know if I'm right or wrong about this one, right? I mean, (laughs) this might be my biggest, you know, egg on the face. And actually, I've sent out emails to several scholars of the Senate and I've been trying to find any former Senate parliamentarians who will talk to me. And if you know anybody in that kind of a position, send me a DM over on Twitter or tweet a message to me. Or if you've really got something that you think is solid, you can email me or Sean. My email address and Sean's are over on our website at TomHartman.com. Just don't have a lot of political words in it because my spam filter looks for certain political words. And there's 3,700 emails in my spam filter right now uh, just from this month. But anyway, that's where I'm going forward. Where Trump is going forward is he's trying to burn down the damn country. I mean, there's just no other way to say it. He's not literally, but metaphorically. I mean, his treason extends far beyond his efforts to damage our belief in democracy. And this thing that, you know, his buddies in Saudi Arabia, Russia, China, et cetera, all, you know, regularly disparage. He's also damaging the ability of the incoming Biden administration to help Americans during the Trump Depression and to get the virus in check. And in that, he has help from Steve Mnuchin and Mitch McConnell. McConnell won't let any legislation through that's going to put money in the pockets of average Americans. He wants there to be a depression uh, that they will call the Joe Biden depression. I am convinced Mitch McConnell wants that to happen. And Steve Mnuchin just pulled back from the Fed, $454 billion that the Fed could leverage into $7 trillion to buy corporate bonds and corporate stock. So the Fed is going to have to get out of the stock market if that, you know, if he pulls that off. And if so, well, this is what Senator Ron Wyden said, quote, as the economy backslides and skyrocketing COVID-19 cases, Secretary Mnuchin is engaged in economic sabotage and trying to tie the Biden administration's hands. And then on top of that, you know, he's he's tearing up our spy planes. He's it really is remarkable this time that we're living in. This is historic. This is every bit as historic as the election of 1800. We'll be right back uh, with the Tom Hartman program, the place where despair is not an option. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program, exposing the con and conservative Tom Hartman here with you. We'll be right back. You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag, you're it. Kevin in Santa Rosa, California. Hey, Kevin, thanks for listening to KNYP. What's up? I just got because it's my memory that Dick Cheney tried to take over the Senate. And the response from the Senate was, get out of here. I think what you're remembering is that Dick Cheney tried to say that under the Presidential Records Act, 
when the Freedom of Information filing from Larry Clayman and Judicial Watch down in Florida demanded the records from his energy task force meetings where he was carving up Iraq, you know, before the war. This was early in 2001. Cheney's rebuttal was that his, the Presidential Records Act did not apply to him and therefore he could keep things secret because he was part of the legislative branch as president of the Senate, not the executive branch as vice president. Okay. Unless you have a specific memory of something that happened there, I don't. I don't recall any. No, I, just, you know, no, I don't recall I, him ever marching into the Senate and saying, I'm in charge. I've been thinking that I heard this for years, but whatever. I also just came across something that he cast the tie breaking vote to give the Senate to the Republicans. Well, that is in the Constitution in the same sentence, in fact. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, that he's the tie-breaking vote, but only in the case of ties, because there, you know, there's yeah. an even number of senators. Okay, well, that's a good one, Kevin. We're hot on the trail here, right? <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate the call, John in uh, Mokena, Illinois. Hey, John, what's up? Hi, Tom. I called to uh, point out a big advantage uh, for the vice president to run the Senate, and that is that she won a national election. She wasn't chosen yeah. by a few misguided Kentuckians. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a few misguided. I love it. Yes, well said, John. And, uh, you know, we'll see how it shakes out. Lewis in Portland. Hey, Lewis, what's up? My question is, my big yeah. thing is to get our activistic, I guess, tendencies out. I want to see Camilla face off Mr. Mitch McConnell. I would watch C-SPAN every day just to have her face him off. And basically, I won't say the word, be slap him. Yeah, she should show up in a Wonder Woman uniform. (laughs) No, she shouldn't. It's like the image just popped into my mind. Like, you know, I'm here. I'm going to kick your ass, bitch. Uh, Uh, You know, it's kind of like the enjoyable thing when I caught FSTV and you guys talked about the swearing in of the six women and Pence had to swear them in. And I'm like, what? And I flipped through the video you talked about, and the best part was Pence having to pick up a Koran and hold it in his hand so that she could swear herself in on a Koran. And he that was, was for Ilhan Omar. Look, all the look on his face, yes. And she's smiling because she's so happy. She wasn't really worried about how he looks. She was just so happy. And she's smiling yeah. and saying that, swearing back, totally confident. I thought, ooh, ooh, he must be, uh, and I thought that's good. Yeah. And, and Pence had to be muttering under his breath and, oh, and, yeah, yeah. and begging he, he for his mother. Face, he had to see the diversity face to face. That's what I like about this country when that happened. So I'm waiting yeah. to just pop on C-SPAN. I will pay to pop on C-SPAN just to say, okay, what's she going to do today? <laughs> yeah, this, this, this could be pay for view that would take uh, big time boxing on, you know. <laughs> it could work. <laughs> Lewis, thanks for the call. Susan in Hamburg, New York. Hey, Susan, what's up? Hey, Tom. First off, thank you for being my daily mentor. I really appreciate it. Anyway, I would like you to touch on the Presidential Emergency Action Documents Mm -hmm. and that secretive power. Now, can Trump use that to rescind the election results? Or on the same token, can Biden use that to override the holdup in Senate to get money out to the country that's in dire straits? I doubt it. The Presidential Emergency Action Action Documents. Yeah. 
that system, my understanding of that system is that it was designed for how we deal with something like a nuclear attack, a war that is way beyond World War II kind of thing, uh, a disaster scenario. It was, to the best of my knowledge, not even used after 9-11, which was... But that's for normal presidents. We don't have a normal president. Yeah, I get that. But there are checks on executive power that exist both with the judiciary and the legislative branch. And I just... Somebody called about this maybe four or five months ago, or maybe even more recently, two or three months ago, and I, I did a deep dive looking them up and reading you know, all about them and, and just kind of got the sense that this is not a clear and present danger. It's an issue, but it's not a clear and present danger. Okay, Soon I, gotta move, just, I, I have to move along, but thank you, you for the call. You eased my mind. <laughs> okay, good, good. Have a great <laughs> thank afternoon. You, thank you. Edward in Sierra Madre, California. Hey, Edward, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, you know your point about Vice President Harris? Yeah, I think it's a great idea. We have to push back any way we can. I mean, obviously, the real problem is the Republican Party, the Senate, you know, Mitch McConnell, and and Trump's just a byproduct of this. I mean, he's a crazy degenerate, but, you know, he's a product. They chose this guy. So we have to push back. We have to use every tool in our toolbox. And I totally agree with you. Whether or not it works, but, yeah, we got to come at them because this is a battle. This is not, it's yeah. not over. This is for the soul of America. And for democracy worldwide, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. We're, uh, we're the goal. We were the gold standard. We still are. This this is not, and we can't worry about those that voted for him. We just have to come out in greater numbers. And I realize that is not the ultimate answer, because even if we won by one vote, that's all that should matter. But we have to get out the vote. We have to get more people voting so we can change the situation we are currently in for the long haul, for the long term. I mean, I mean, I agree with you, and thank you for what you do, your whole staff there. You guys are uh, doing the Lord's work. If, uh, you'll okay. Edward, i got to move along, but thank you. Thank you for your kind words and thank spot you. on. I totally agree. Yeah, I appreciate it. Mike in Chicago. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, how are you? You know, Great. getting to your point, I love the idea of the president of the Senate. But you know what? In being a realist, I'm sure you as well would understand Joe Biden would never allow Kamala Harris to do that. Why not? <clears throat> because, you know, when he first comes in, he wants to make nice. He wants to reach across the aisle. And I think kicking in the door and doing something like that, it would upset the apple cart. And one of the reasons, if I can go off on a tangent really quick, last the week after the election, political released names of the front runners for his cabinet. And right now, the number one person for attorney general is Doug Jones of Alabama. I mean, to me, that's like, you know, and then you've got Tom Perez, who's another runner up for the uh, for the Commerce Department, Meg Whitman, a Republican. You know, you don't Elizabeth Warren and Bernie aren't even on these lists of people. So he's not even trying to help the progressive end. It seems like he's reaching out more to the Republicans. Yeah, you know, I, I, I get all that, and I don't think that making a lot of noise right now is going to help. There is no 
easy way to communicate directly with these people. It's not like calling your elected officials. And we're going to get what we're going to get. And I really don't want to start the circular firing squad here. I think that even, you know, I mean, Doug Jones was not a bad guy. Yes, he's a conservative Democrat or a, a, you know, a corporate Democrat or whatever you want to call it. But he might make a great attorney general. Who knows? Well, he was was actually, as I say, his name was thrown into the mix because of his civil rights activism. But I'm like, what about Harvard constitutional law professor Lawrence Tribe? Why isn't his name in there, you know? Well, Lawrence Tribe is, is, uh, I'm not sure that would be a good idea. But, you know, Doug Jones, maybe. You know, the bottom line, Mike, is we are going, I mean, the people in charge right now are literally nuts. I mean, you know, you've got a 34-year-old kid in charge of our intelligence services. You've got, or a good chunk of them. You've got the President of the United States taking welding torches to dismantle spy planes so that we can no longer observe what Russia is up to. You've got Mike Pompeo having secret meetings in the Middle East right now as we are repositioning our B-52 bombers into that region, and nobody knows why. And, you know, having a secret meeting with the dictator of Saudi Arabia and Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, the indicted right-wing criminal in Israel, or, you know, alleged criminal. I mean, it's like the crazy train he's burning is down the house right before now. he leaves, you know. Oh, yeah, he absolutely is. He's salting the ground and poisoning the wells. I get you. Mike, thanks for the call. Bottom line for me is at least for the time being, I just want to give him a chance. I want to get him in. I want to see what they're going to do. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. For our 
book today, we're reading from Elon Papp's book, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. This is from the preface. It's titled The Red House. The Red House was a typical early Tel Avivian building, the pride of the Jewish builders and craftsmen who toiled over in the 1920s. It had been designed to house the head office of the local workers' council. It remained such until toward the end of 1947, it became the headquarters of the Haganah, the main Zionist underground militia in Palestine. Located near the sea on Yarkon Street in the northern part of Tel Aviv, the building formed another fine addition to the first Hebrew city on the Mediterranean, the White City as its literati and pundits affectionately called it. For in those days, unlike today, the immaculate whiteness of his houses still bathed the town as a whole in the opulent brightness so typical of Mediterranean port cities of that era and that region. It was a sight for sore eyes, elegantly fusing Bauhaus motifs with native Palestinian architecture in an admixture that was called Levantine, in the least derogatory sense of the term. Such, too, was the Red House, its simple rectangular features graced with frontal arches that framed the entrance and supported the balconies of its two upper stories. It was either its association with the workers' movement that had inspired the adjective red or its pinkish tinge that it acquired during sunset that had given the house its name. The former was more fitting as the building continued to be associated with the Zionist version of socialism when, in the 1970s, it became the main office for Israel's kibbutzim movement. Houses like this, important historical remnants of the mandatory period, prompted UNESCO in 2003 to designate Tel Aviv as a World Heritage Site. Today, the house is no longer there, a victim of development, which has raised this architectural relic to the ground to make room for a car park next to the new Sheraton Hotel. Thus, in this street, too, no trace is left of the white city, which it has slowly transmogrified into the sprawling, polluted, extravagant metropolis that is the modern Tel Aviv. In this building on a cold Wednesday afternoon, 10 March 1948, a group of 11 men, veteran Zionist leaders together with young military Jewish officers, put the final touches on a plan for the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. That same evening, military orders were dispatched to the units on the ground to prepare for the systematic expulsion of Palestinians from vast areas of the country. The orders came from a detailed description of the methods to be employed to forcibly evict the people. Large-scale intimidation, laying siege to and bombarding villages and population centers, setting fire to homes, properties, goods, expulsion, demolition, and finally planting mines among the rubble to prevent any of the expelled inhabitants from returning. Each unit was issued with its own list of villages and neighborhoods as the targets of the master plan. Codename Plan D, Dalit in Hebrew, this was the fourth and final version of less substantial plans that outlined the fate the Zionists had in store for Palestine and consequently for its native population. The previous three schemes had articulated only obscurely how the Zionist leadership contemplated dealing with the presence of so many Palestinians living in the land that the Jewish national movement coveted as its own. This fourth and last blueprint spelled it out clearly and unambiguously, quote, the Palestinians have to go, end quote. In the words of one of the first historians to note the significance of that plan, Simcha Flappen, the military campaign against the Arabs, including the conquest and destruction of the rural areas, was set forth in the Haganah's plan to let. The aim for the plan was, in fact, the destruction of both the rural and urban areas of Palestine. As the first chapters of this book will attempt to show, this plan was both the inevitable product of the Zionist ideological impulse to have an exclusively Jewish presence in Palestine, and a response to developments on the ground once the British cabinet had decided to end the mandate. Clashes with local Palestinian militias provided the perfect context and pretext for implementing the ideological vision of an ethnically cleansed Palestine.
Zionist policy was first based on retaliation against Palestinian attacks in February of 1947, and it transformed into an initiative to ethnically cleanse the country as a whole in March of 1948. Once the decision was taken, it took six months to complete the mission. When it was over, more than half of Palestine's native population, close to 800,000 people, had been uprooted. 531 villages had been destroyed, and 11 urban neighborhoods had been emptied of their inhabitants. The plan decided upon on 10 March 1948, and above all its systematic implementation in the following months, was a clear-cut case of ethnic cleansing operation regarded under international law today as a crime against humanity. After the Holocaust, it has become impossible to conceal large-scale crimes against humanity. Our modern communication-driven world, especially since the upsurge of electronic media, no longer allows human-made catastrophes to remain hidden from the public eye or to be denied. And yet one such crime has been erased almost totally from the global public memory, the disposition of the Palestinians in 1948 by Israel. This, the most formative element in the modern history of the land of Palestine, has ever since been systematically denied and is still today not recognized as an historical fact, let alone acknowledged as a crime that needs to be confronted politically as well as morally. Ethnic cleansing is a crime against humanity, and the people who perpetrate it today are considered criminals to be brought before special tribunals. It may be difficult to decide how one ought to refer to or deal with in the legal sphere those who initiated and perpetrated ethnic cleansing in Palestine in 1948, but it's impossible to reconstruct their crimes. Anyhow, it continues the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. The Hartman Report is a free daily podcast, seven days a week, and you can find our entire three-hour podcast over at TomHartman.com. So let me dig a little deeper into our circumstance and situation right now. You know, great news on the coronavirus front. It's hard to keep them straight. I don't recall if this was Pfizer or Moderna. I think it was Moderna. But in any case, one of the three vaccines, the company just released a much larger data dump, much larger you know, groups and things. And what they found was that the vaccine was uh, over 95% effective in preventing people from getting COVID. And of that 5% of ineffectiveness, in other words, the people who actually did get COVID after they'd been vaccinated, none of them ended up going to the hospital. So it's 100% effective against severe COVID. And that's really cool. And I'm going to get a shot as soon as I can. And, you know, I think by this time next year, certainly, and maybe even five, six months earlier than that, you know, five, six months from now, I think that life is going to start to go back to normal. But right now is not normal. And right now people are in a crisis. I've run small businesses ever since I was 17 years old. You know, the first business I started the electronics joint in East Lansing, Michigan. It was a TV and stereo repair shop. And we grew really fast. We started the back of a head shop and then we moved into our own offices. And I went out and borrowed 3000 bucks for lab equipment, you know, for repair equipment, thinking that we would have all this business as TVs were becoming modular. It was for developing. It was for, you know, working on the next generation of TVs. I completely miscalculated. There was no demand for it at all. And I had this debt, and it killed my company. Now, $3,000 doesn't sound like a lot today. It was like, that would be maybe the equivalent of twenty-five dollars or $30,000 in today's money. That was uh, 1970, I think. 
But I remember the god-awful feeling of, oh my God, my business is going under. I don't ever want to be in this situation. My business is collapsing. My personal income has gone to zero. I can barely pay my employees. I'm not sure I'll be able to pay the lease next month or the rent. It was frightening. I mean, it was one of the best lessons I learned in retrospect on how to run a business. And the main reason why no businesses that I've started since then have gone down in flames like that. And truth be told, you know, the economy wasn't in crisis. I was 19 years old. The world was my oyster, as it were. And, you know, I can get things done. So it wasn't the kind of disaster for me that it is right now for people who own restaurants or other kinds of businesses that are largely shut down, bars, gyms, well, really, malls. I mean, you know, fill in the blanks, right? Any place where people used to get together, they're in theaters, they're just not getting together anymore. And those people are scared to death. The business people, okay, so I'm empathizing with people who are going through what I've gone through. I've also been unemployed in my life, you know. I've, you know, Louise and I lived in a a trailer for a while. I mean, we, 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 we've had good years and we've had bad years over the years as we were, you know, getting things going and starting companies and things and living super, super frugally or right on the edge. And when I was a little kid, you know, we got it from the cheese store. So I can just imagine the horrible feeling that literally 10 million, as many as 22 million actually, Americans have right now, knowing that if Mitch McConnell doesn't allow something to get through the Senate, the day after Christmas or the day after, you know, the day after Boxing Day, I think it's December 27th, unemployment insurance ends. The unemployment insurance, the long-term unemployment insurance for people during the, the COVID emergency that was built into the CARES Act, it simply ends. This is a $39 billion expense, by the way, which is a rounding error for the defense budget. After December 31st, homeowners can't request penalty-free forbearance on federally-backed mortgage payments. That's 2.7 million people. For renters, the CDC's order that halted rent evictions, that expires. The CARES Act paused payments on government-backed student loans without interest. 22 million student loan borrowers took advantage of that. Nearly 3 million were already in forbearance. That goes away. Congress has less than two weeks to do this. And, I mean, it's just, it's just mind-boggling that they're not. Bernie Sanders talks about, and he wrote this, this great op-ed over at The Guardian, about how if we want to avoid future authoritarians, he said that, you know, if you look across America and look at who voted for Trump, and to the extent that I'm okay with anybody doing an analysis of Trump voters, oh my God, spare me. This one is a good one, because the areas that have been hit worse by Reaganomics, the areas that have been deindustrialized, the areas that have lost their business and commerce, are the areas that most heavily went for Trump. And so Bernie is saying, hey, bring our factories back, bring our unions back, put these people to work, and they will stop running around with Confederate flags, you know, shouting stupid slogans, and they will start going to work every day and providing for their families. I mean, you know, Bernie didn't say it in those words, but I'm totally with it. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. How best do we prepare for the reemergence of fascism and a fascist candidate in 2024? So John Kasich was recently on CNN talking about how 
Democrats need to be listening to rural America. Words to that effect. Uh, No, I think Democrats need to be talking to rural America and reminding rural America that it was a Democratic president that got them Social Security. It was a Democratic president that brought electricity to rural America, the REA, through the Franklin Roosevelt administration. It was the Democratic Party who brought phones to rural America. It was the Democratic Party that brought Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and public education to rural America, subsidized all those things. Democrats don't need to be listening to rural America. They need to be talking to rural America. There is over 1,500 right-wing radio stations in rural America talking smack all the time, 24-7, and none in rural America carrying a progressive message. That's what Democrats need to be paying attention to. You can check out our new video on this over at TomHartman.com. Carrie in St. George, Utah. Hey, Carrie, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind? Oh, you're welcome. Uh, regarding the powers of the VP over the Senate, my question is, uh, I heard on Stephanie this morning that the president of the Senate would have the power to override the majority leader's uh, scheduling of confirmation hearings. And I'm trying to find that's online correct. anything about that. That's, it that's, is correct. that's the speculation. Yeah, that's the speculation. Nobody really knows because it's never been tested. In the first administration, the vice president, this was George Washington and John Adams, and John Adams played the role of presiding officer of the Senate, essentially. And then John Adams became president and Jefferson was vice president and Jefferson didn't have any interest in playing that role. And so he did other things. He, he wrote a book, a manual for the Senate and for the House and, you know, carried on a lot of correspondence. But he was so by the second year of the Adams presidency, he was so pissed off at John Adams that they literally never saw each other again in person. Um, even though he was vice president for another two years. This was after Adams signed the Alien Sedition Act and put 18 newspaper publishers in prison. But then throughout the 19th century, the 1800s, there were periods of time when the vice president actually took over and ran the Senate. And then there was periods of time when they said, nah, we'll just let you guys do it. And it kind of depended on the vice president's inclination. And then in, in, I think it was in the 1890s, 1897 sticks in my head, the Senate actually started issuing specific rules or adding to their rules for all this kind of protocol. They've had rules for the Senate since the very beginning. The Constitution requires them to. So the theory is that while Kamala Harris can't walk in there and say, okay, I'm in charge now because I'm president of the Senate and uh, you, Mitch, have to sit down and shut up. Well, actually, she (laughs) might be able to say that. She can't introduce legislation. She can't vote on things. But what she can do is recognize members. And she could say, okay, Mr. Sanders, Senator Sanders, would you please speak? And he can then say, I am introducing Medicare for all legislation or I am introducing, you know, the HEROES Act. And he can talk about it, and he can push it, and then she can call for a vote. And at that point, all the Republicans have to go on the record. Yes, we're opposed to people having unemployment insurance. Yes, we're opposed to people having food stamps or, or you know, any Yes, we're opposed to free vaccinations. Yes, we're opposed. You know, so she can create a very uncomfortable venue for the Republicans. And perhaps more important, on a lot of these issues like student loan debt, it's entirely possible that two or three or four or even five or six Republicans will peel off from Mitch McConnell and would vote for it if it simply came up for a vote. So the theory is 
that Kamala Harris can exercise her role as president of the Senate and basically take over as the presiding officer, and that that would be her principal power to call on people. Again, though, that would be in violation of the Senate rules. And the Constitution, on the one hand, says she's the president of the Senate. But it also says that both the House and the Senate have the right and obligation to write their own rules, which they follow. So my guess is that this would go to the Supreme Court. Which is more important, the Senate rules or the person being the president of the Senate? And given the the court that we have right now, I'm guessing that they'll go with Mitch McConnell and the rules. But we'll see how it shakes out. That's my understanding of it all. Yeah. Thanks a lot for the call, Kerry. It's good to hear from you. We will be right back. I'm speaking at the Bioneers 2020 conference. It's running December 5th and 6th and 12th and 13th. My keynote is how all life is organized around democracy. The Georgia Secretary of State, this is... This is astonishing. Brad Raffson perjurer. I remember the first time Greg Pallas said that. It was on this show because the Georgia Secretary of State is in charge of purging the names off the list. And he says, uh, yeah, the new Secretary of State, Brad Raffson perjurer. And I was like, you mean burger, right? Like Raffsenberger? No, no, perjurer. <laughs> yes, that's his name. Brad Raffson perjurer. Raffens perjurer. I mean, maybe when Brian Kemp hired him, he thought, hey, a guy whose name is Perger? Perfect. Let's make him Secretary of State. I mean, he didn't hire him. He was it's an elected position, but, you know, the Republican Party, whatever. But anyway, this is what uh, Raffin Perger, Raffin's Perger had to say. He said he was talking about how he, we had a record 1.3 million voters cast ballots by absentee mail, another 2.7 in person. He said this is Georgia's gold standard three weeks of early voting. Around a million people waited in lines averaging a minuscule three minutes on Election Day. By all accounts, writes the Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, by all accounts, Georgia had a wildly successful and smooth election. We finally defeated voting lines and put behind us Fulton County's now notorious reputation for disastrous elections. This should be something for Georgians to celebrate whether their favored presidential candidate won or lost. For those wondering, mine lost. My family voted for him, we donated to him, and we are now being thrown under the bus by him. Honest to God, this is, this is a tweet from the Georgia Secretary of State. And then uh, Mark Judson for Congress replies going, LOL, you know, after watching Trump for the past four years, you expected something different? <laughs> yeah really. Meanwhile, Rupert Murdoch is a little alarmed that Trump has been trashing Fox News. And so they're thinking of paying him off. They're having serious discussions among the Murdoch family about giving Donald Trump $100 million. And in exchange for that, they'll make him a regular contributor to Fox News or maybe even give him his own show. And HarperCollins will publish his memoir, his presidential memoir, $100 million. Just be nice to Fox News, please. This is how bizarre it's gotten. David in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, David, what's on your mind? Tom, on Monday, 
you uh, relate a story about the Georgia special election and how they're trying to tie vehicle registration into the ability to vote in that. I haven't seen anything else about that in the news this week, and I was wondering if you could give me an update. Yeah, I'd be glad to. You can get all the information, by the way, at Greg Palace website, gregpalast.com. He's got a couple of good stories on it. What happened was, I think it was Sunday night, the Republican Party in Georgia, or the uh, Georgia legislature, excuse me, the, the Georgia Republicans, their legislative Republicans, proposed three rule changes for the upcoming election on January 5th, the, uh, the, you know, where Kelly Loeffler is running against uh, Reverend Warnock and where David Perdue is running against John Ossoff. And two of those rule changes were fairly non-controversial tweaks to just make things work better. And the third was that if a vote is challenged, and of course there's Republican poll watchers who sit there and challenge every vote they possibly can when they know that they're coming from a heavily Democratic area. If a vote is challenged, then they can go back to the voter and demand proof that they're actually residents of Georgia. And the principal proof that they would accept would be a car having been registered in Georgia uh, and a current Georgia driver's license. And lacking a, a current Georgia driver's license, they would have to have a car registered in Georgia. So they put this rule together, and it was going to be voted on Monday afternoon. Greg Palast called me up Monday morning at 6 o'clock in the morning and said, you won't believe what happened about six hours ago, you know, in the middle of the night in the Georgia legislature. And, uh, you know, can, can we get together and come on your show and talk about it? I put Greg on the air that uh, Monday. He was our first guest. We started the show with it. And Greg told that story to our 7 million listeners. And within a few hours, the Georgia legislature backed down on that rule. They're still oh, trying to push you know, more restrictions. They're trying to, trying to figure out ways to invalidate people's votes because that's the game, you know, that's the game they've been playing for you know, 200 years right. here in Georgia. But that particular part has been held at bay so far, uh, so far as okay. we know. So you can read all about it over on Greg's website. Okay, so there's thousands of college students in Georgia getting driver's license. Well, I don't know. I don't know how it's how it's going to play out or how it's going to work or who's going to do what. But I do know that, you know, when it hit our show, it hit the fan, you know, as they say, in Georgia. And, uh, you know, I mean, we're on Sirius XM. We're on radio stations all over the country. We've got listeners in Georgia. And, and apparently a whole bunch of people said, what? In fact, Greg was, uh, were, oh, we were on Rob Call. Rob Call, uh, who publishes opednews.com. Rob has a podcast, and Greg and I were both on his podcast, and Greg referenced that. He said, boy, the response to that show was amazing, which was cool. I mean, it's not real often that I get feedback, you know, immediate feedback from people about, you know, whether we're, what we're doing here is actually having an impact on the real world. That one did. So that's good news, in my opinion. David, i got to move along. Thank you for the call, and thanks for the question. Beth in Albuquerque, New Mexico. What's on your mind, Beth? Hi, Tom. You have often said that committee chair people choose the candidates for the party, and the primaries. that's not the case in New Mexico. What we did might be in some other places, but not in New Mexico. So we have a very okay. much more open format than that. The committee chair people actually organize meetings where if there is more than one candidate running for a position on the ballot, we have votes 
through the committee and then through a convention and so forth. So it really it's it's a very necessary. I mean, it's a, a wonderful position that organizes your neighborhood and it's extremely important. It just doesn't have that kind of uh, specific right. power. If I took the word chair out of there and I simply said precinct committee people decide who the candidates are going to be, would I be accurate? Well, not quite, because the committee people are part of, they invite people to a meeting where we select people. It, you know, not most so you have a public don't meeting have a lot and, of and if a, candidates. If a candidate packs the meeting, they can, they can get themselves nominated? At the state level, by the time it gets to the state level, yeah. So it, it's, it. it's really open, but you do have to be elected at some point to represent. It's representative, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> it's kind it. of, yeah. It's complicated. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate the call and for setting me straight. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Brian in Anaheim, California. Hey, Brian, what's up? Hey, Tom, I am on the hunt. I've got my blue paintball gun, and we are going to turn these two Georgia Senate seats blue. You know how you always tag us? Well, this is a game of freeze tag now. It's a freeze tag. We need to freeze the GOP at 50 seats, yeah, to take the Senate. So I've actually set up a volunteer organization called Blue Georgia Senate for people who want these two seats to go blue and want to know how to do it. We've got information on phone banking, how to write compelling tweets, Facebook posts, letters to the editor, and links to Greg Palast articles and videos about the massive purge. I was, I was honored to receive a letter or tweet, rather, of reference from him on our work to protect the vote. May I list the site I built, or should I just give my Twitter yeah, handle? Sure. Okay. Uh, it's bluegeorgiasenate.com, okay? And Blue Georgia Senate is also producing a five-minute short video. It's a short motivational drama designed to promote activism and get the blue team off their butts and let Georgia voters know they may have been purged. And we are going to need the big guns for this one, Tom. The bigger the guns, the greater the turnout. But we are in this, Tom. We are in this game. 
compile our team, we make this video, we get it going viral, we get the word out to a whole new audience about the purge. As you know, there's all of like 30 credible cases of voter fraud per year. The database companies that compile the purge list have birthdays and socials, and they deliberately do not match them because these purges aren't about preventing voter fraud, they're about preventing blacks from voting. And I don't think we should stand for that Jim Crow crap anymore, Tom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we need to let everyone in Georgia know. I am totally... I'm totally with you, Brian, and I wish you the very best in it. Thanks a lot for the call. Steve in Cooperstown, New York. Hey, Steve, what's up? Yes, Tom, I wanted to make a comment about an unconscious process that was present in Adolf Hitler. And uh, when he, before he committed suicide, he instructed his generals, I believe it was Berlin, uh, to uh, destroy all of Berlin and the people in it. And, uh, of course, many of them refused to do that. And it's considered to be, uh, analytically speaking, it's quite uh, an unconscious process. And people can infer anything they want from that in regards to this current president. I I can recall when he was running for president, there were many elderly people who had survived the Holocaust who were writing into the New York Times that this man had many similar characteristics and issues that Hitler himself had. So... Tom, thank you very much for everything you do. You have a great show, and I really enjoy listening to you. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Steve, I think this is a very real thing, this syndrome. I think it's far more frequent than people realize. You know, Louise and I started this community for abused kids up in New Hampshire back in 1978, and then we started a school there. And when we left, we hired a person to take take it over to run it. She ran it for a few years, and then one, and we were still on the board of directors. One day, basically called us up and said, I'm shutting the program down. And we were like, why? And she, she was like, because I'm retiring, I'm leaving, and uh, it won't continue without me. And so we quickly fi- found somebody to replace her and rebooted it. But she had already, like, basically, you know, hadn't quite gotten to the point of selling the furniture, but was damn close. I think that there's this idea that some people have that if I can't have it or if I can't run it or if it's not mine, then it has to go away. And I think that Trump is thinking that way about American democracy. And you're absolutely right about Adolf Hitler. Uh, An old friend of mine was the 16-year-old courier who delivered the news to him that the war was lost and and wrote a book about it. His name is Armin Lehman. The book was in in the Fuhrer's bunker or in Hitler's bunker. And the same thing. Steve, thank you. listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I mean, I believe we see this, uh, there's this thing called Founders Syndrome, too. We see this in businesses, we see it in nonprofits, we're seeing it right now. We're reading today from The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shearer here on the Tom Harbin University Book Club. This is from The Forward by Shearer. He writes, Though I lived and worked in the Third Reich during the first half of its brief life, watching at first hand... Adolf Hitler consolidate his power as dictator of a great but baffling nation and then lead it off to war and conquest, this personal experience would not have led me to attempt to write this book had there not occurred at the end of World War II an event unique in history. This was the capture of most of the confidential archives of the German government and all its branches, including those of the Foreign Office, the Army and Navy, the National Socialist Party, and Heinrich Himmler's secret police. Never before, I believe, has such a vast treasure fallen into the hands of contemporary historians. Hitherto, the archives of a great state, even when it was defeated in war and its government overthrown by revolution, as happened to Germany and Russia in 1918, were preserved by it, and only those documents which served the interests of the subsequent ruling regime were ultimately published. The swift collapse of the Third Reich in the spring of 1945, however, 
resulted in the surrender not only of a vast bulk of its secret papers, but of other priceless materials such as private diaries, highly secret speeches, conference reports and correspondence, and even transcripts of telephone conversations of the Nazi leaders tapped by a special office set up by Hermann Goering in the Air Ministry. General Franz Halder, for example, kept a voluminous diary jotted down in Gabelsberger shorthand, not only from day to day, but from hour to hour throughout the day. It's a unique source of concise information for the period between August 14, 1939 and September 24, 1942, when he was chief of the army staff and in daily contact with Hitler and the other leaders of Nazi Germany. It is the most revealing of the German diaries, but there are others of great value, including those of Dr. Joseph Goebbels, the Minister of Propaganda and Close Party Associate of Hitler, and of General Alfred Jodl, Chief of Operations of the High Command of the Armed Forces. That's the OKW. There are diaries of the OKW itself and of the Naval High Command. Indeed, the 60,000 files of the German Naval Archives, which were captured at Schloss Tombach near Coburg, contain practically all of the signals, ship's logs, diaries, memoranda, etc. of the German Navy from April 1945, when they were found, all the way back to 1868, when the modern German Navy was founded. The 485 tons of records of the German Foreign Office, captured by the U.S. First Army in various castles and mines in the Harz Mountains, just as they were about to be burned on orders from Berlin, cover not only the period of the Third Reich, but go back to the Weimar Republic, to the beginning of the Second Reich of Bismarck. For many years after the war, tons of Nazi documents laid sealed in a large U.S. Army warehouse in Alexandria, Virginia, our government showing no interest in even opening the packing cases to see what documents of historical interest might lie within them. Finally, in 1955, ten years after their capture, thanks to the initiative of the American Historical Association and the generosity of a couple of private foundations, the Alexandria Papers were opened, and a pitifully small group of scholars with an inadequate staff and equipment went to work to sift through them and photograph them before the government, which is a great hurry in this matter, returned them to Germany. They proved a rich find. So did such documents as the partial stenographic record of 51 Fuhrer conferences on the daily military situation as seen and discussed in Hitler's headquarters, and the fuller text of the Nazi warlord's table talk with his old party cronies and secretaries during the war. The first of these was rescued from the charred remains of some of Hitler's papers at Berchtesgarten by an intelligence officer of the U.S. 101st Airborne Division, and the second was found among Martin Bormann's papers. And he goes through and he lists some more of the stuff, and he says, I have not read, of course, all of the staggering amount of documentation. It would be far beyond the power of any single individual. But I've worked my way through a considerable part of it, slowed down, as all toilers in this rich vineyard must be, by the lack of any suitable indexes. It is quite remarkable how little those of us who were stationed in Germany during the Nazi time, journalists and diplomats, really knew of what was going on behind the facade of the Third Reich. A totalitarian dictatorship, by its very nature, works in great secrecy and knows how to preserve that secrecy from the prying eyes of outsiders. It was easy enough to record and describe the bare, exciting, and often revolting events in the Third Reich. An Anschluss with Austria, the surrender of Chamberlain at Munich, the occupation of Czechoslovakia, the attacks on Poland, Scandinavia, the West, the Balkans and Russia, the horrors of the Nazi occupation and the concentration camps and the liquidation of the Jews. But the fateful decisions secretly made, the intrigues, the treachery, the motives and the aberrations which led up to them, the parts played by the principal actors behind the scenes, the extent of the terror they exercised and their technique of organizing it, 
All this and much more remained largely hidden from us until the secret German papers turned up. Some may think that it is much too early to try to write a history of the Third Reich, that such a task should be left to a later generation of writers to whom time has given perspective. I found this view especially prevalent in France when I went to do some research there. Nothing more recent than the Napoleonic error, I was told, should be tackled by writers of history. The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shearer. Welcome back. Let's see here. James in Vancouver, Canada. Hey, James. Thanks for listening to us on SiriusXM. What's up? Oh, hi. I'll be quick. I know time is short. I just follow like, like any other Anglo country, an English-speaking country. We're inundated with your politics. It's just, you know, I got a question. I asked John Fiegel saying this once and kind of got it like a, a heck no. But just looking at this, you know, it, it seems it's easier for Democrats to win the White House, which happened last time. I, I know it was pretty close in the Electoral College. And, you know, they've won the House, but you were just talking about the Senate. And my understanding is it's unlikely they're going to win these two runoffs in Georgia. And looking ahead, it's difficult on the map to see where Democrats can get a majority or even get like, you know, 52 or 53 seats to be able to pass things. When does it become that you have to change your constitution, which I see no effort to do, even though, as you know, in the past, it did frequently happen. Or there becomes like what I'm getting at here is like a separatist movement. You know, I'm not advocating for breaking up of your union. But when do people like, for example, in the West Coast states, I understand you're from Oregon. And if you look at the map, Arizona is going bluer, New Mexico, Colorado, Nevada. When does that become a conversation? Because there's so much that needs to be done. You've been talking about climate change, right? And healthcare. And as you know, you're the only wealthy country that doesn't have universal health care. But, but when does that happen? And there is one example recently, the Czechoslovakia, you know, it wasn't violence. I'm just wondering if that ever comes because, you know, there must be a frustration point where, you know, you're not able to do things. And I'm just curious what you think about that. Yeah, well, there's there's a lot to unpack there, James. In terms of separatist movements, I think, A, it's, it's not going to happen. I mean, you know, we fought a civil war over that and we're not going to go mm-hmm. back to that. But I do think that with the interstate climate compacts that you've seen and mm-hmm. now this interstate compact to basically do away with the Electoral College by mm-hmm. each state committing to throw their electoral votes to not who won the vote in their state, but to to the person, to the candidate who won the, the vote in the across the entire country. You know, if that could pass, this is an interstate compact. It's being done independent of Congress. That would eliminate the Electoral College. I mean, and had that been in, in force, the last Republican president we would have elected would have been George Herbert Walker Bush because he was the last Republican president who actually won a majority of the popular vote. But you're aware, right, that in a few years, 70% of the population is going to live in like, you know, a a small, I don't know the exact number, a small number of states. But when does it become that the minority ruling the majority just becomes too frustrating? Are you going to have this conversation in 2040? Well, you're assuming, James, that states like Wyoming and Montana and Utah and whatnot are going to stay red forever. And I think as long as there's 1,200 right-wing talk radio shows across the country mm-hmm. and another 1,000 or so uh, religious shows that are doing thinly disguised politics along with their religion, I think as long as that stands, Red America stands. But I think mm-hmm. that when the day comes that some progressive entrepreneur in Cheyenne, Wyoming, 
decides to buy a local or build a local radio station or in Butte, Montana, you know, or Casper, Wyoming. I think that, you know, people have been listening for now 40 years to right wing talk radio and have just like become automatons. You know, it's like, I know my talking points because I heard them from Rush and then I heard them from Sean and then I heard them from Glenn and then I heard them from Mark Levin and on and on. I think we should be going after the red states, frankly. The other thing, you know, if we ever get enough power in the Senate, I think that we should allow Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico to join the union. Do you honestly see that happening uh, now? Like that those new states will come in? Okay. Well, D.C. has been begging for statehood forever. With Puerto Rico, it gets a little more difficult. But, uh, you know, uh, Republicans have always fought D.C. statehood because uh, up until very recently, D.C. was a majority black city. Now it's kind mm-hmm. of on the edge of, of not being anymore. But still, there's there's a lot of black people in Washington, D.C., and that's enough to make Republicans freak out. And they, because, you know, they're, they're one of the core fundamental electoral strategies of the Republican Party and has been since Richard Nixon in 1968 is the Southern strategy, you know, naked racism. But uh, yeah, I think we can get it through. I'm hopeful we can get it through. James, as you said, I'm running out of time here and I want to get Penny from Jackson, Wyoming. I just invoked Wyoming. So James, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. Call again. Penny in Jackson, Wyoming. Hey, Penny, what's up? Hi there, Tom. I have a challenge or a query. Why are we so generally accepting of the use of the word norms when these aren't norms that are happening to us. Not For saying example, please and thank you, you know, is breaking a norm, not writing give, a letter. Give me to an your example of what you're talking about, Penny. Well, we say, you know, the president breaks all the norms or he's not abiding by the norms or McConnell. Uh, and Emily Murphy, they aren't breaking norms. They're lying. They're breaking the social contract. Which is which what a norm us, is. You know, to live us, well, the social, yeah, but the social contract is a, is a kind of thing we all observe, no matter where you, you know, you are on the political spectrum, because it enables us to live together in groups. You know, we all stop at stop signs, even if there's no, nobody on the other road, and there's no policeman yeah. lurking to give us a, a ticket. So I don't think what's so happening so are point breaking is, Penny, norms. That we should be using much stronger language? Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay, I'm totally oh, with you. I'm totally oh, with deliberately misleading. I'm calling it a sedition. You know, it's the, incur- the incitement of violence against a government. That's sedition. Penny, thank you for the call. Great to hear from you. And thank you for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, and that includes you. Thanks so much for showing up on my show today. Looking forward to tomorrow, and uh, get out there, get active, tag your end. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.